my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wealth. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at River.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. Over the last five years, the Bitcoin Conference has become the world's largest gathering of Bitcoiners. From breaking announcements and international media coverage to countless meaningful talks by thought leaders and industry innovators, we are excited to continue our drive for global hyper-Bitcoinization. From July 25th to the 27th, 2024, we'll be taking the Bitcoin Conference to the city of music and freedom, Nashville, Tennessee. Join thousands of attendees for opportunities to learn, engage, and network across three days of pure Bitcoin signal. Get your tickets now for the best price at b.tc forward slash conference. You are not going to want to miss what Nashville has in store. How's it going, Shinobi? How are we all doing today, guys? Good afternoon, morning, evening, wherever you are out there. Hope we're all doing all right. Data markets, Bitcoin. Let's go. Yeah, sorry, uh, sorry, Dr. Kala and Robin to pull you gentlemen away from your hacking for a little bit. Yeah, I'm inviting up Robin as we speak. Hey guys, the, uh, nice the to output, be here. the output of uh, you know uh, Bitcoin and other development has uh, you know probably decreased about 99 percent because Kala and Robin are uh, in the spaces right now for today. So, uh, absolute honor to have both of you guys, uh, you know, two of the best um, around. So, really excited to talk to you guys today. Excited to be here. Thanks for having us. I, I suspect that this is is not so much a, a Twitter issue uh, on Robin's end, uh, in so much as it is he doesn't want to put his keyboard down. The code isn't going to write itself, Shinobi. We got you up here, Robin. Here we go. All right. Looks like we are all here. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks, Chris, for hosting. Uh, thanks, Shinobi, for uh, getting us all together. And of course, thanks again to Kala and Robin for joining. Uh, we are going to be talking about, uh, you know, uh, Bitcoin and data markets today. There's actually a, been a whole bunch of, um, I would say, unexpected uh, developments recently. Uh, a couple, uh, you know, white papers that have come out um, in the last couple of weeks, one written by Robin uh, and one written by you know, a couple of nons um, that are focused on kind of, uh, you know, looking at how Bitcoin can be used uh, to incentivize, uh, you know, data markets, um, which I think is really fascinating. I think I think we're uh, it makes a lot of sense to me that the Bitcoin space is, is kind of, uh, you know, beginning to look at, uh, you know, data as a commodity and how the incentive structures of data markets can be influenced by, uh, you know, the, the censorship resistance of Bitcoin. Um, so 
yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Um, you know, obviously, I think um, you know most folks here probably know Kala from uh, you know his his work in um, with Cashew uh, and you know Chami and Mint, uh, you know goodness, but also worked on uh, this uh, an iteration I believe you called Nut Bonds, uh, which was a take on uh, you know something that. Robin had just come out, which was this, um, this basically this, uh, you know, fraud proof system um, using uh, or called Bitstream uh, using Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, kind of wanted to just sort of like, oh, oh, we got Sam Parker as well. Wonderful. We got all the, all the folks. Um, yeah. Kind of wanted to just like kind of open up the floor right away. Um, Shinobi wrote, uh, also doesn't put his keyboard down, wrote two pieces uh, yesterday uh, about, um, you know, Bitstream, uh, and then as well about this other white paper that came out uh, that uses torrents um, called Durabit. Um, so Shinobi, do you want to kind of just like kick us off and just kind of give us a, a brief little overview of uh, Bitstream, and then we'll let Robin, when he gets back up here, kind of explain uh, what he's cooking, um, and then kind of go over Durabit for a second, and then uh, we'll get into, uh, you know, we'll pick Kala's brain on nut bonds and a lot of other fun iterations here yeah just uh giving a heads up before shinobi goes uh, i pinned both of shinobi's articles up in the nest and then uh working on getting robin up here it seems like he's having some co connectivity issues so pulling him back up he should be back in a sec yeah so you know both of these proposals i think are interesting because they kind of attack the same problem but from two different angles um so the, the core of Bitstream is really the, the fraud proof aspect of things. Um, there, there are already like pre-existing schemes for atomically uh, buying a piece of data or a file with Bitcoin or some other digital currency. And the, the gist of it is essentially just get an encrypted file from whoever is selling it. And then you can arrange an atomic swap uh, for the actual decryption key so that you atomically acquire the key to unlock that data as you make the payment. The big problem with that is kind of how do you prove somebody cheated you if they cheat you? Like that, that effectively requires you to post the entire encrypted file somewhere and the key to decrypt it. And the only way people can verify this person defrauded you is to actually take that whole encrypted file, decrypt it, and verify that it's not what it was supposed to be. Um, well, Robin, I think I'll let him get into the details uh, when I'm done rambling, came up with a very nice and very efficient way to prove somebody cheated you in that case without having to literally take the entire file and show that to somebody to prove it, which in like absurd cases could be like gigabytes of data, like if you were purchasing a movie or some kind of large file like that. And on the other side of this, um, Durabit kind of looks at how to keep a piece of data around even if there, there is not market demand from users who would download that um, at the time to keep paying for it. And you know the way Bitstream is effectively a way to just purchase data from people, a 
anatomically and with a, a quick way to prove that somebody cheated you, um, that doesn't guarantee necessarily that a piece of data will stick around for forever. Because if whoever is selling it notices there is no longer demand for it, then they don't really have an incentive to keep it around. Well, Durabit is pretty much this bond of pre-signed transactions that slowly pay out chunks of however much money was put into it to a Chaumian eCash mint. And the whole idea is that whoever's running that mint can monitor a specific torrent swarm or a magnet link. And whenever anybody seeding that reaches out to the mint and goes, I understand this Durabit protocol, that mint can pass out eCash tokens to those registered users who are seeding that file. And as they get payouts from the set of pre-signed transactions, they can take their cut and distribute the rest to the people actually seeding the file. And so unlike Bitstream, which is mostly about just allowing people to pay directly for data in a secure way, Durabit's kind of a system to guarantee that it stays around and you know stays available even if demand doesn't exist for it. So I, if Robin, you want to kind of go into the specifics of the Bitstream fraud, or fraud proof. Um, yeah, and thanks for having me here. Um, I think the first thing to understand about it is that um, every Lightning payment also um, sells a secret to the sender. So Lightning in itself is already very well suited for stuff like yeah, um, buying a decryption key. Because um, with every Lightning payment, you buy the pre-image of, of the recipient that the re recipient created. And this pre-image can be just used as a decryption key for, for, for encryption schemes. And that is the fundamental idea behind Bitstream, or like that's not the fundamental idea. That, that's like a fundamental idea to to Bitstream. That in general, in Lightning, with every payment, you already buy a secret. And in Bitstream, we are using that secret as a decryption key um, to to facilitate that uh, atomic swap of files against coins. And the, the, the basic idea is actually pretty simple. It is just um, using verifiable encryption. Verifiable encryption is a complex thing, but like verifiable encryption in general is just the idea that um, if I'm the server, I encrypt a file and I prove to you that you can decrypt that file um, if you have a particular decryption key. So um, yeah, to, 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 to prove that, of course, you need also to know about the concept of a file ID. But I think most people know it from 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 torrents and stuff like that. In torrents, you um, like you go onto a website where you find the movie or whatever you want to download, and there you find the tracker, and the tracker essentially contains the Merkle root of the file, and then you can download in in the decentralized network um, the chunks of the file. And um, the interesting thing is that this Merkle root identifies the file, and um, that can yeah act as like the unique identifier among the entire network. You don't need a database for it. It, it just emerges from the file itself by yeah, turning it into a Merkle tree. So um, that is the identity of the file. And with verifiable encryption in general, you could prove that a particular blob of data decrypts to exactly that file with that file ID um, with a particular key. 
Um, in general, that would be already enough to facilitate the, the atomic swap because um, yeah, we could just use verifiable encryption and say, hey, here is that file. It is encrypted with the following key and the following key is just um, the, 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 the pre-image um, that I sell you via lightning. So that is the, that is the, 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 the basic idea. So you just verifiably encrypt, encrypt the file and then you sell the decryption key via lightning. And um, that would be enough if, if it would be fast enough. However, it's, it's kind of inefficient. Like we can do it and we can make it kind of fast, but if you had a web server that tries to um, serve lots of big files to lots of clients, then um, the current verifiable encryption schemes are not fast enough. They, they are just, they're kind of close, but like, it would be just too much of a hassle to uh, to encrypt files, yeah, with the general with, with with like the with zero knowledge proofs in the end. It's it's a bit too expensive to generate zero knowledge proofs for every file. So um, I, I've worked on that actually, and I tried to make it faster. And no matter how fast you make it, or like at least that was my impression. No matter how fast you make it, you you end up doing about like one curve operation per 32 bytes of file. And that is a lot of curve operations for 32 megabytes of file. You would do a million curve operations. And that is, yeah, it's just untractable for a web server in general. We, what we want to have is a scheme that is super fast. And that's why we have to make that verifiable encryption very fast. And what we are doing here, or like what Bitstream did, what the entire idea behind Bitstream is, is um, to turn it around and to not really verifiably encrypt the file, but to only commit to a particular file and then you send it. And if you lied, then the sender can, can derive a, comp uh, sorry, the recipient, the client can uh, derive a compact fraud proof. And um, that kind of like turns around the entire work because for the server, it becomes essentially instant to, to serve the file. They don't have to encrypt anything anymore. They just commit to the file and committing to the file is like orders of magnitude faster than uh, encrypting it. And um, yeah, with that, with that scheme, um, we turn it around and um, make it such that there is only ever work needed if the server light and the work is only needed on the client side. So the server never has to do any hard work. And that makes that scheme very, very efficient. And yeah, the idea would be to, in the end, have have servers that can run this run this scheme uh, essentially as fast as they can run HTTPS. So it doesn't really matter if they run it or not. Like it's it's both fast as fast as if they would not run it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so sorry. Yeah, I I want to jump in here as well uh, because uh, I'm super bullish on it. I want to express how. Bullish I am because uh, I think Bitcoin and in my mind Torrent these are two systems that are already operating on the internet for years decent very decentralized and uh, unbreakable almost both of these have proven to be extremely robust and I would say these are the two most important decentralized networks that we have today in my mind they always should have come in a pack so when I first heard of Bitcoin I immediately thought that it would be a way to facilitate or to improve the torrent network itself, which is essentially means building the tools that we're uh, discussing today, making it uh, viable to incentivize uh, torrenting and making it possible that you, you can rely on the availability of a file for the long run. So maybe also to make a little distinction between Bitstream and Durabit here, 
Durabit is more uh, of a service or an idea that uh, wants to ensure data availability over time, over a long time. So you can be sure that you can find the file, let's say two years from today. Uh, whereas Bitstream more focuses on the uh, demand driven download of a certain file to incentivize uh, 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 Cedar to be online and sell these services today to the available users. So these are two different things. In my mind, they are very compatible to each other and they should be com combined. So we can uh, ensure the uptime of a file and also uh, give those who are seeding uh, immediate reward for it. And the, um, the essential, uh, let's say innovation for Bitstream that Robin also just uh, explained is the atomicity. So to make, to make it possible that only when you pay, the pay for the file, you can actually get it. And only when the uh, payment was received, the file will actually be useful. So both parties, the server and the client, can be sure that they're doing the, the intended thing. And I find it fascinating how Robin solved this using a bond, essentially making it unviable to lie. There is no cryptographic uh, security that this will always be the file like and uh, a zero knowledge proof. Uh, way of uh, uh, verifiable encryption way of solving this problem. However, you just uh, make the price of lying so high that you assume no one will do it. And only those who are honest about serving the correct files will be the services that you'll be using. So, um, so incredibly cool stuff. And just yeah. real quick for listeners, I uh, think just want to try and simplify uh, some of the Bitstream stuff real quick. Um, like, the, the reason that it's so much cheaper for the, the server to handle the encryption air quotes is instead of like actually doing a curve-based encryption, it's just storing things. So instead of the server actually having to do like the cryptographic computations to encrypt something, it just literally takes the bit string that is the pre-image or the key and it just lines it up with the individual bit chunks of the file and it just flips the bits based on what that pre-image is. So instead of actually having to do like the, the complex uh, cryptographic calculations, it's literally just like, I see a zero, I see a zero, I make it this instead. And that's very fast and cheap. But the, the fraud proof part is the, the Merkle and my headset died, so I hope you guys can still hear me. Um, but uh, yeah. the uh, the fraud proof part takes advantage of that Merkle tree structure that BitTorrent and other uh, file sharing systems uh, work based on. And you could have, for example, like a, a terabyte file. And like I said, when we first started in a conventional scheme like this, you would literally have to show somebody an entire terabyte file to show that like this guy cheated me. Like nobody's gonna download that. It's completely impossible to even dream of enforcing something using that on a blockchain. But because of this Merkle structure and the fact that the encryption is done using Zoring instead of a, a more traditional encryption scheme, all you have to do is show one Merkle path to one chunk of that encrypted file and show that when you decrypt it, it doesn't match that one Merkle path of the unencrypted file, which you, you know the hash of, 
And that alone is enough to, to prove that whoever sold you that file cheated you. So instead of trying to take a terabyte of data and get somebody to decrypt that and listen to you like, oh, this guy cheated me, you, you just need maybe a, a kilobyte or something with the Merkle paths for a massive file. And so um, like, that is, is huge. Yeah, to, to comment on this, though, uh, um, please, Robin, correct me if I'm wrong, but when uh, he spoke about efficiency, uh, I think, you know, you have to contrast these two approaches is the verifiable encryption path, which is very complicated encryption. But in this case, the system works differently. So uh, in the, if you build something like Bitstream with verifiable encryption, you know, before you pay, the client knows before they pay that they will be able to decrypt it to the correct file. Here in uh, Bitstream, you only know after the payment, after you decrypt it, that uh, the client, the server has cheated or not. And then if you caught the server cheating, you can then punish them. This is how you avoid uh, uh, the server cheating in the first place. Whereas in the first case, uh, with the verifiable encryption, uh, before you even send out the lightning payment, you can verify that this file decrypts right. And this takes an enormous amount of computation to create that proof for the server. And please, Robin, correct me if I'm wrong, if I got it, got you wrong there. Yeah, uh, that's exactly the issue that we're solving here. Like we could solve it with verifiable encryption, but that's just um, yeah, way too slow. But it would be a bit better in the usability sense because yeah, you know immediately if the file is correct or not. You will never buy an incorrect file. In Bitstream, you might buy an incorrect file, but yeah, it's very unlikely that the server will sell you an incorrect file because you can punish them for it, and that disincentivizes them heavily to uh, yeah, sell you an incorrect file, assuming that yeah, the deposit yeah. is like 100 times yeah. more than what you pay for a file or something. And so, so tie it back to Shinobi, and now here comes then the fraud proof. I think that's what you refer to Shinobi, is the Merkle proof, because now in order to be able to punish the server, in the most stupid case, you would have to upload the entire file and say, please decrypt the server and you will see that this was wrong. But uh, doing it with a Merkle tree allows you to upload just a single chunk that you've downloaded to prove that uh, you weren't served the file that you were looking for. So this is another optimization that also is necessary to make this viable, but uh, distinct from the, the from the first one. And I guess, uh, you know, Sam, uh, I'm sorry, Mark, but... Uh... Sam, you, you have any thoughts on any of this? Uh... Yeah, I mean, in general, I'm becoming more and more bearish on uh, fraud proof systems versus, so there's like validity proofs. What most people mean, mean when they say validity proof is you're having to prove that something is true fully in zero knowledge. And as we were saying earlier, that's very, very expensive versus a fraud proof system where basically you claim that something is true <clears throat> and you, you construct that claim in such a way that uh, you basically can prove that that claim is false very, very cheaply in this case with like a single Merkle inclusion proof. Yeah. So I think this is really, really cool. I've been a fan of the original, like uh, um, the original like ZKCPs or uh, the fair swap stuff that I think Robin cited in the paper for a while. And this is like a really cool continuation of that. Uh, I wanted to, I've been, was just thinking today, Robin, I wonder if this schema could be turned into some kind of weird, standalone ZKP of a of like verifiable encryption itself, whereby, uh, you know, you're doing some kind of Fiat Shamir challenge based on the root of the like encryption. And then that denotes like a random set of openings that you can do that both uh, 
that that both like preserve the pro like the uh, the encryption of what's behind it, but also um, like convinces you with cryptographic certainty that they were that they actually encrypted it properly. Have you, have you been thinking of like extending it like to something like that? Yeah, well, you just have to oversample the data a bit and <laughs> sprinkle a bit more magic on top yeah. of it, and then you have exactly. Yeah, you're just making it stark. But I, I, I was wondering if, if maybe yeah. you could you could hack in a way of not having to do the like, um, you know, the, the oversampling stuff through like funny ways of, of encrypting it. Maybe maybe you wouldn't be able to use XOR for this. Um, yeah, yeah, not quite sure. But actually, like. In, in, in my head, Bitstream was the first thing. Like I've, I came up with it like uh, three months ago or something. Uh, I just didn't write it up yet. And um, then I thought about generalizing it and using it for general computation. And that's how BitVM was created. So BitVM is actually the oh, successor of Bitstream. Interesting. Yeah, because the other thing I was thinking about was like, what if the thing that you're, what if the thing that you're Merkleizing uh, is actually like a uh, it's like a NAND tree and whether you could do like weird ZKP things like that. So yeah, I can see how one inspired the other. Yeah. Maybe you remember the first version of BitVM that was um, like where, where you couldn't have dynamic data where, where like the data had yeah. to be known at the compile time of the contract. And that is exactly actually what you're talking about now, like Bitstream with mm. static data is pretty much what you're talking about now. Like this is the right. first version of BitVM, right. and then we added the bit commitments to make it dynamic. So that was kind of like the thought process that led to BitVM in the end. Right. Yeah. No, this is really like this is efficient enough that I could see this catching on in like the trad world as just a way of uh, doing like um, like you know like optimistic verifiable encryption. Well, that was a an action-packed segment of autism yeah un unreal I, I had no idea that uh bitstream was the uh the uh ancestor um to uh bitvm that's very interesting robin a little uh, little alpha leak for it for everyone here um i, I kind of wanted to bring up and and, and kind of pick your guys's brains a little bit um it seems like both of these uh papers and proposals kind of talked about you know the actual like kind of distribution mechanism um, or, or at least for Durabit, um, you know, that, you know, it, it, it talks about it in the paper of, of using Chami and Mints and, you know, maybe using a cashew implementation, um, to actually distribute the funds, um, that are earned from seeding. But it also seems like, and specifically in, in the, in the Bitstream paper that there was mention of with the optionality added that Opcat brings, there's actually a way to do this, uh, without using, um, you know, the Chami and Mint. Now, I really love Chami and Mints. I think they're really exciting and interesting. And, and you know, Kala kind of uh, chom pilled me, uh, you know, a little while back and kind of explained that, you know, uh, you know there, there, there's so many use cases and things that can be built with these, these kind of blinded signature mints. And um, I was just kind of curious about how you guys see these sort of things building um the incentive and, and payment distributions like do you do you actually see this becoming something that uh becomes much more like trustless uh perhaps um and and, and entirely using just pre-signed bitcoin transactions or, or covenant transactions um or, or do you kind of see this you know really working uh you know with with these mints you know 
forever moving forward. How do you guys kind of see the distribution mechanisms uh, playing out? Um, and, and do you think that the mints eventually will be needed at all? Or will this be something that covenant optionality will, will solve for? Um, I'm pretty sure we can hack it into Bitcoin at some point. Um, maybe even already today. Uh, I explored it a bit and I see ways, but I don't see nice ways. Like it looks a bit ugly. But if you really wanted to, you could probably hack the uh, the the bond contract into Bitcoin already today. Um, but I think there are many proposals um, in the oven that uh, could could enable trustless uh, versions of the bond contract. However, um, the bond contract is not that important. Um, it actually just has to exist. And once it exists, you don't have to use it, right? So if you, for example, would do it on, on the liquid sidechain, it would be okay-ish because the clients don't have to interact with the liquid sidechain at all. They just have to know it is in the liquid sidechain and they have to trust that it's that the liquid uh, functionaries will actually execute the contract and stuff like that. But long story short, um, the, the contract in itself is not the really interesting part. The more interesting part is um, the payment. And in my tests, um, it became pretty apparent that the encryption part, quote unquote, is not the bottleneck anymore. The payment itself is the bottleneck. And um, yeah, to, to make the payment as fast as possible, um, we probably have to use a mint, like we show me cash or something like that is probably the fastest way you can make a payment on the internet. And I think lightning will not be fast enough in, if you have to find a route and stuff like that. It, it depends of course, how well connected your node is and stuff like that. But, um, in my tests, the route finding was always the bottleneck. And if you want to optimize it as much as the modern web is optimized, then uh, you will probably not use lightning because it's well, slow. Um, I think it's it's uh, helpful to remind us like what the trust assumptions or why why you would need a third party or want a third party like uh, mint at all because these uh, systems there there you can try to minimize the uh, the trust on various fronts. Uh, one of them could be just minimizing the entire third party risk uh, on the asset itself and that obviously bitcoin doing everything on chain and maybe with lightning will always be king uh, if you can execute it right but these uh, proposals um, i think it's more important uh, to to make them viable to be able to minimize trust across the individual participants of a network and that's why chomin means actually can work here because uh, what the mint achieves or what eCash for the payment uh, of the download or eCash also for the bond, if you like, uh, can achieve is that you uh, can minimize the trust between the server and the client. They don't have to trust each other anymore, but they trust that, for example, the Mint will be online or the Liquid Federation will be online and so on. So uh, I, th these are fair assumptions. If you build uh, maybe a service out of it, maybe it can be a, a website that runs this for many users. Um, so I guess this is where it becomes really viable. And uh, yeah, as Robin said, if you want to make a payment for every uh, couple of kilobytes that you download and make it uh, as atomic as possible, such that you can also minimize the risk of getting rocked by making everything very, you know, all the payments very slow, but uh, highly frequent, 
then uh, Tommy and Mints are ideal in that case, I would say. Very interesting. <clears throat> cool. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what, yeah, maybe just opening up generally to the floor here. What, what kind of like markets do you, do you kind of see being built with, with this types of tooling? Like how, how do you actually see users, um, you know, using this, uh, what, what, what kind of use cases are going to be built downstream from having this kind of fraud proof or this incentive seeding structure? Um, do you see it replacing anything that's currently being used right now? Do you see it as sort of a niche supplementary thing? Um, for Bitcoiners, do you see this as something that actually moves well beyond Bitcoiners and it's just happens to use Bitcoin, uh, you know, for, for, you know, data, uh, incentive structures, uh, where, where do you kind of see this developing? Cause, uh, it's something that I'm really just fascinated with, uh, in general is, is the way that markets have kind of developed around data. Um, and you know how so much of, you know, what is, uh, you know, kind of sold, um, you know, to these, these kind of surveillance companies, intelligence companies, and, and huge data harvesting companies. Um, so much of it is, is data and there's such a price to data in, in, in a strange way, depending on how it is. So how do you, how do you see this developing as from a market standpoint, from a user standpoint? Um, and, and I guess kind of, when do you think that would happen? The, the last question is the hardest. Um, but in general, I would love to see something like um, Nostra um, that is just the same as Twitter in general. Like just like exactly like Twitter, just a different backend, a decentralized backend. And I think in particular, like all the multimedia content, like starting with images, but also videos and audios like we are doing right now, I think um, that should be hosted or like I'm not even sure if, if that is the right solution for it, but I feel like that might be a cool direction that this content is hosted on uh, yeah, decentralized servers and, and we all pay them um, just in the background. Like what you would do is just you charge your, your, your account with like, I don't know, $20 per month or whatever Twitter costs. And um, then in the background, you automatically pay for the for the media that you consume and you would not even notice like you wouldn't even see the price or something like that it would just everything would just happen automatically in the background and um what's really cool about bitstream is that it requires absolutely no relation between the client and the server so you can just download the file from a random server that you have never spoken to before that you don't know anything about and uh, they cannot lie to you. Uh, you don't need any trust relation to them. They, of course, they can lie to you, but they cannot lie to you without getting punished. That, that's my point. And um, so they won't lie to you. And um, once we have that that open market where essentially everybody can participate, um, then I think the prices will become pretty good for the consumers because if there are low barriers of entry to a market, then uh, usually that's that's good for competition and that's good for for the service and that's good for the end users for the price that the end users pay and um that's why i feel like there could be uh, yeah there could develop a market such that decentralized hosting is just um solved and um i think in particular nowadays we, what we are seeing with lots of these platforms like youtube and twitter is that they are pushing users into paid accounts right um, 
you see it here with like the the, the check mark, the blue check mark that is already um, one step. Um, and on YouTube, you see it as well. They are getting way more aggressive about um, like the the ads and everything and ad blocker blockers and stuff like that. And um, I think what we are seeing is that these platforms want us to pay. And once that gets normal, then uh, it's even easier for like a Nostra like Twitter clone to 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 charge people for for the content in in Bitcoin because currently it's kind of people are not that used to it, right? Like we are used to to free platforms. We are used to that Facebook is free. We are used to that Twitter is free and stuff like that. But I feel like there's a shift, and I feel like that is really good for um, you know for for things like Bitstream as well. Like the big platforms are shifting in the direction of paid accounts, and that is good for. Yeah, coin-backed media or Bitcoin-backed social media things. Um, yeah, I haven't spent any time thinking about how this could translate into a real-world uh, product or how these markets would look like. But from my perspective, um, it is the most natural thing on the internet to sell data with internet money. That's what I assumed that Bitcoin would do from day one, and it never happened. And it never really successfully happened. And the reason for that, I realize now also after reading Bitstream, the Bitstream paper, is that a um, lightweight and useful atomic swap between data and money didn't exist. And I think, and this, like, th this makes me the most excited because uh, this simple insight that this exists now and we could build it in various forms, uh, means that finally we can start thinking about uh, what it would look like a world, what a world would look like, for example, if torrents would be incentivized. And uh, I think like this would be from for me the most enthusiastic way of uh, of trying this uh, this um, technology is uh, looking at the torrent network. That is a network that already exists. It already exists also just for uh, altruistic reasons. So most people don't make any money running torrent nodes and just adding the security that you can get paid if someone wants to pay, for example, for a premium slot in your Cedars uh, uh, connections or so, something like that could help sustain the Torrent network for more decades, could help uh, grow it. And I think these are the things that we need to solve first, maybe, before we can then start building the decentralized internet on top of it. Most of the other projects like, um, I don't know, Filecoin and so on, they... Uh, try to bootstrap a network that just doesn't exist really and no one really wants to use it and it also involves a shitcoin and so so many extra extra steps uh, i'm looking at what what is already there which i dearly love the torrent network and i think uh, finally with the atomic swap we can start charging it with money and making use of bitcoin for an existing problem yeah uh, i think i'm gonna because we're getting up to like 20 minutes left try and steer us a little harder into the, the Durabit side of things. So like, if Bitstream is like kind of the magic grease to really facilitate real-time exchange just to meter like the, the bandwidth and resource uses for things that everybody wants all of a sudden right now, like I'm starting to kind of look at Durabit as a solution to the exact opposite problem. And that's after all of that demand kind of materializes, runs its course and disappears. Like one, one of the big problems 
with Torrance staying available is that curve. You know, like anybody who's ever thought about, because none of us ever would pirate movies or music or anything like that, uh, you'll be familiar with that curve. Like once something first becomes available, like there is a massive spike in torrent swarm activity, uh, like people actually staying online and seeding that content. And as you get further and further out from that initial like swell of demand, it just keeps dying off until it pretty much asymptotically just rushes towards zero and nobody's actually seeding that file anymore. Like even though you can find magnet links, you, you can still identify it no one's actually serving it and you know something like durabit where you can just find an e-cash man who would run that protocol take a bunch of money and just sign out a long string of pre-signed transactions you you can effectively guarantee that even after you hit the bottom of that natural curve of like a torrent availability there is still some economic incentive to maintain an artificial floor of like a number of seeders or availability of that data. And I think that's a really kind of underthought about aspect of all of these types of distributed file, or file sharing schemes is what happens after that initial swell in demand. Like it just fades off and that data eventually dies in terms of public availability. So like, I, I wanna, kind of pick your guys' brains, like, what do you think about Durabit and, like, that side of this problem? Um, I love Durabit because, like, basically the whole reason why I think sidechains, not specifically drive chains, are important is because uh, in a world in which we keep block sizes small, uh, it's simply a, a brute force fact that not everybody is going to get their own block space. And so what that means is we're going to have to batch UTXOs in some manner. Um, and we've talked about this before, I think on stage as well, but I don't know. There's basically two ways that you can do that securely. Either you have to have very, very complex and expensive, uh, like multi-sign, like multi-party computation schemes where the scale N squared in the number of users. And if one person drops that, the whole thing goes to crap, or you have some alternate data layer that stores the naked layer two UTXOs and provides the necessary data for everybody to, uh, to construct the Merkle inclusion proof from their UTXO to whatever the batch UTXO is on chain or something along those lines. And the important thing about the sidechain in that context is that it's providing strong data availability. So in the same way that we know that like, you know, we're always going to be able to get a copy of the Bitcoin blockchain if we want it, we, we want to have the same kind of uh, strength of conviction that we're going to be able to, to get our UTXO witness data on one of these layer two things when we need to get it. Otherwise, we've basically had our coins burned. And so uh, I, I'm open to there being alternative ways of providing this, uh, you know, this data availability guarantees. Uh, and something like this is is one of those things, because if you could imagine a scheme whereby there's like an ongoing direct payment system to keep some file alive and accessible, 
uh, that's something where I can start to see, you know, that being the ticket for what I'm talking about. And we don't necessarily need side chains. Yeah. I mean, like that's actually one of the first things I started thinking about uh, after I read the paper. Like if, if everyone here is familiar with zero net, it's like a, a weird hacky system to effectively keep web pages alive um, just through torrents, but there, there's no real like economic incentive. And it, it's a whole scheme where you actually use like Bitcoin keys as the namespace and identifiers and things like that. But it actually does have support for kind of like mutating dynamic um, magnet links tied to a piece of content. And one of the things I've been trying to think of is like, how could you anchor something dynamic like that to a Durabit bond? Because what it does effectively right now is when you put the first transaction in the bond scheme on chain, it just has the magnet link for the file in an op return output. But that's a static, like single magnet link. So I've been trying to think like, how could you anchor a root magnet link but still have like a verifiable scheme for mutating that magnet link as you add or remove data or whatever uh, from the file. And if you could do something like that, then a single Durabit bond could incentivize like a dynamic um, data set, like people's witness data for second layers to stay around just off a single bond. Too much autism? I know, I I'm very much agree. And I think in general, we need such a yeah, layer for, for data availability for um, all kinds of things, like for all the, I think you called it witness data, Sam. And um, we, like in general, that is such a huge pain that you cannot use a multi-sig without backing up the, 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 the script. And if you lose it, then your coins are gone. And um, if there would be just a layer to incentivize, um, people to, to keep that data around, that would be just so great. That would be, that's totally needed actually. Bitcoin should have that feature that you can just throw data in there and it will be kept alive yeah. as long as you pay for it. And, yeah. Well, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. That is integral thing that is missing, I feel. Yeah, like Greg Maxwell had this old proposal uh, for um, like a, a shitcoin with a useful proof of work scheme where the useful proof of work was doing random queries inside the UTXO set. And uh, if you, and, and actually like a couple projects have actually picked up on this idea. And um, what that basically does is it ties like directly guaranteeing data availability of the things you want to, to guarantee data availability about into the consensus scheme. And if you, if you do this right, and one project that I'm aware of has done this, um, the the chain does not progress on uh on version on uh, unless the data has reached a like 51% threshold of data availability which is a very cool uh thing to think about but um you know obviously we're never ever going to do that for bitcoin but i think it would be really interesting is if if we could come up something uh along those lines maybe on top of something like durabit whereby, um, you know, you're doing these kind of, it's almost like mining where you're doing these kind of random queries uh, into the data set and uh, you can hit a quote unquote block 
and that block allows you to claim uh, some number of some amount of the bond that's been posted for storing this file. I think that might be cool to explore. Yeah, and I guess like oversampling such that um, yeah, you don't need to store all the parts and you can distribute it over T of N people, uh, sorry, over N people. And if T of them have their share, then you can recover it and stuff like that. I think um, that would also be important for like a very strong resilience. Yeah, to be honest, I never understood why that isn't just better than like, I never really understood why like, oh, splitting up the file and like redundifying it using these like weird schemes is better than just like everyone stores the whole file. I don't really get what the savings are with that. Yeah, it's more efficient. Like um, everybody could store this, the, the entire file, but um, then they have to store the entire file. But uh, you can uh, you can make it such that they don't have to store all of every file, but like only very like small small parts of it. It's not really parts of it. It's more like the you know, the thing that they need. Right. To, uh, right. Like, yeah. So it's like because it's Merkleized, like you can just go like I have these leaves, and the other guy can go I have those leaves, and because of that Merkleization, you can guarantee that somewhere everybody has each piece instead of the whole thing it's more like shamir secret sharing it's essentially that you do shamir secret sharing with your file and then you just oversample it and like then you have more parts of the file and then you distribute it to everyone and then everybody has to to store a bit less than the than the file like let's say half of the file or a tenth of the file depending on how you want to build it and um then you have like some threshold and if, if those number of people uh, if they are available you can recover the file um it's mostly an optimization but that's a standard a standard thing that that other file sharing uh, networks like um filecoin and so i think they are doing it and uh, i think it's a good thing for um yeah, redundancy and uh, to, to make the system more resilient or like it's it's an efficient way to make the system more resilient that is more efficient than everybody storing everything. Right. And it drives decentralization. Yeah. Sorry for that. And it uh, inherently drives the decentralization because, um, yeah, you need more participants to split up the file. Yeah. Like Robin, the thing that I don't get is, um, like, if if we, if if what we want to maximize is the number of instances that uh, can uniquely be. Uh, able to like reconstruct the file, like like the number of like actual people, let's just say the number of buildings in the world in which if all other buildings got destroyed, that one building has the file and we can recover it. So like if you want to call like the number, like call that an instance of the file. And so if we, if we want to maximize the number of instances of a file uh, and then, you know, there's, there's going to be a corresponding cost associated with uh, the number of instances times the size of the file. I don't, I don't see how the the kind of uh, like splitting up Shamir stuff gives you any savings on on the cost. It seems like it's more uh, just like splitting it up in terms of efficiency of like actually serving it. But because it seems like if if it if it actually like reduced the cost that you're running into like information theory stuff. I don't know. I need to look into it more. Um. In the let's say we have in total ten gigabytes of data, like all the users together have ten gigabytes of data in the system. Yeah. Um, in the naive setting, if 
every server would like completely replicate it, then uh, you would have the number of servers times 10 gigabytes, right? And um, that is the least efficient way, or like that's the that's the baseline. That's like um, in that case, all servers can die except for one, and then you can recover 100%. But um, with these Shamir secret sharing like things, um, you can just set a threshold. You can say, okay, um, if uh, three in a hundred servers survive, then uh, you can recover the data. Uh, uh, yeah, I see. I see. And uh, yeah. so, like, yeah. servers would have to store yeah. 10 gigabytes, but maybe only seven gigabytes. Yeah. So I see. So it's not it's not giving you like stronger guarantees or reduced costs. It's basically like granularizing. Uh, the cost to redundancy trade-offs beyond like a single instance. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's uh, decreasing the storage cost for each individual participant. Yeah. That's, that's the main point. Not everybody has to replicate the entire data set. You can just have a fraction of it and still be useful to this system. Okay. So you, you make like the likelihood of, uh, a loss of a large number of participants leading to data loss a little higher, but then you lower like the minimum cost that anybody needs to participate in the system. Yeah. Yes. The way I'm imagining this in my head, Robin, is imagine you have like a quantized grid where on one axis, there's the, the size of the file in gigabytes. And on the other axis, there's numbers of instances. And if you do it naively where it's like, you know, each server has to have the full copy of the file you, and you want to move that your, your slider around for like how big the file and how much redundancy you're kind of fixed to like locking onto the grid. But with this scheme, you kind of can like smoothly move it all around the plane and you can kind of like, like th that to me, I think is the real benefit that this gets. And yeah, thank you for explaining that to me because I actually well, kind of understand the value now. I can make an example where this is uh, important. If you think of uh, Library Genesis or Sci-Hub, which are both uh, huge databases of books. And uh, if you want to participate in seeding uh, LibGen or Sci-Hub, you need a big fat server in order to be able to store the entire data set. So um, it's basically almost impossible for an average person to join the network and be useful. Uh, however, with a scheme like this, where you can uh, separate it, I think you will just find disproportionately more people who are willing to um, add one or five gigabytes to the network and still uh, increase the resiliency and the efficiency of the network by doing so. So there is a nonlinear relationship, or maybe you could say a Pareto curve of distribution of disk size. Pretty sure about that. And uh, if you want to be able to uh, say to 95% of all people, hey, your computer can also be useful, then um, you need to be able to split the file across multiple instances. Very interesting. Well, unfortunately, I think we're kind of uh, getting to the end here of this, of this hour. Um, really, really wild conversation, a lot to think about. <clears throat> Appreciate you fellas joining. Just wanted to kind of give some like last words, last comments here as we wrap things up. Um, you know, I guess I'll, uh, I'll start with Robin. Um, yeah, appreciate you joining us and, and for all of the, the amazing stuff you're churning out these days. Um, <clears throat> any, any final comments you kind of want to leave the, uh, the group with? Um, we should activate OpCat. Fair enough. <laughs> Simple as, yeah. Yep. <clears throat> uh, speedy trial now.
Anybody? Anyone? Just kidding. Um, Kala, uh, lead, lead, lead us out, brother. Any, any, any last words for us here as we uh, kind of wrap up our little uh, data market chat here? Uh, I just want to say I'm very excited about this. I've been waiting for a long time for stuff like this to emerge and super happy to be able to witness this live with you guys. Incredible. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. How about yourself, Sam? Anything you want to say uh, on the way out here, brother? I think I said this last time, but I want to reiterate it. Like we keep coming up with all these like really, really cool schemes to efficiently have layer twos on Bitcoin, but they all are dependent on fraud proofs, the interesting ones. And uh, and so I think that like the, the, the next big important thing that needs to be built for Bitcoin is we need to figure out a way to guarantee settlement of a fraud proof, uh, whether that's some kind of like fraud proof aggregation scheme. I have no idea, but I think that that is like the next big sexy challenge that someone needs to take on. Give me a cat and I will build it. Yeah, man, let's go. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Well, Shinobi, anything you want to say uh, on the way out? Lead, lead us off here. Lead us out, I should say. Stop thinking of highly illegal things to do with software. Uh, I refuse. Uh, I really truly believe that the information war is sort of a two-front war. Uh, and one of them is sort of uh, de-incentivizing uh, the, uh, you know, convenience of these, um, you know, bad software, bad hardware, bad faith networks, uh, you know, and just giving up our data everywhere. Um, we really need to disincentivize that. And then, of course, the other front is we need to incentivize, you know, durable, available, uh, immutable data publishing. Um, I think obviously using a money in a database uh, like Bitcoin for both of those things uh, is going to be incredibly helpful. Um, and it's really exciting uh, to see, uh, I would say, honestly, to, you know, just to, uh, you know, blow some warm air up your, up your behinds, you know, people that I think of some of the, the smartest minds in the, in the space, uh, you know, looking at these problems head on and, and building these things. It's really exciting. I'm very thankful for it. Uh, I think uh, it's very important that we figure this out. Um, it's going to get a lot harder uh, as the internet and things begin to get more closed off and more wall gardens begin to propagate and kind of take over. So uh, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for the work that you guys do. Um, and uh, yeah, thankful for you guys joining us uh, here today. Uh, Chris, I don't know if you have any last words as we sign off, but um, yeah, thank you everybody so much for uh, joining us. Yeah, Mark. Uh, thanks guys for joining us. Uh, Mark, I guess the last thing I want to toss it back in your court, if you want to talk about the uh, new cover release for the upcoming magazine. Uh, sure. Yeah. New print magazine just came out primary issue. Um, yeah. Take a look at it. Um, while you're there, while you're looking in the nest, definitely take a look at, uh, you know, the two papers that were dropped. Um, you know, there's the Durabit paper and then take a look at Robin's uh, Bitstream paper. Shinobi wrote two pieces on them for Bitcoin magazine, I believe yesterday. A uh, whole bunch of, uh, you know, hardworking folks up here. Um, and then check out Kala's, uh, obviously his work with Cashew and, um, and Nut Bonds, uh, and obviously follow Sam. Um, that's all I really got, guys. Uh, I really think data markets uh, is, uh, you know, something we all really need to think about. Um, both the data markets that exist now, how we invert them and defeat them, and then how do we build new ones that, uh, you know, incentivize, you know, good things here as we move forward. So uh, absolute pleasure. Um, I reject Shinobi's last comment. I think we should all continue to think about doing illegal things. 
because it's important sometimes at least to create the infrastructure to be able to do things, not because we want to break the law for, you know, no reason, but because we should be able to, you know, speak freely and post freely and have a free open internet and a free open public square. Um, it's not always about creating WikiLeaks 2.0, um, but, you know, we should be able to. So appreciate everyone's time here. Thanks everybody so much. And uh, yeah, we'll see you on the other side. Thanks guys. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Have a good one. Peace. Thank you, Miami, for the last three years in this amazing city. The whole world shut down, but Miami welcomed us with open arms. We want to show Bitcoin to the whole world. We are taking the conference on the road to set the stage for Bitcoin in a new city. Nashville. Bitcoin 2024 is coming to Nashville in Tennessee, a city that is known as a music and freedom city. Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville from July 25th to 27th.